Anyway, it's good to be with you today. You know, I don't know about you, but I would say that life moves very quickly. How many would say life moves quickly, right? Like, it just seems as you get older, the quicker it goes. For me, I remember it almost like it was yesterday, my freshman year of college. You know, how many remember when you were about 18, 17, 18 years old, right? It doesn't seem so long ago. And I remember it like it was yesterday, my freshman year of college. One specific course comes to my mind immediately, which is quantitative reasoning. Anybody in the room know what that course is? You know, neither did I. And so I enrolled in that class. I needed a math course to take. And I can tell you, however, that from the very moment that that syllabus entered my hands, I knew that I was in way over my head. You know, my plan was simple, right? It was to sit towards the back, make little to no direct eye contact, and just kind of befriend anyone who looked like they had a small grasp or handle on what was being taught in the class. Every time I would enter that classroom, I would begin to fervently pray, Dear Lord, please do not let the professor call on me, right? Fervent, not necessarily spiritual. You know, and, and of course, then it happened, right? The moment that I feared, the moment that I dreaded, the professor, she called out my name. And she asked me to explain the math problem that was listed across the board. You know, in that moment, I can tell you all I could utter were two words. I can't. She kind of paused for a moment, right, and with this look of, of sympathy. How many know that that's not always a very, like, nice look to receive, right? And this look of sympathy, right? She proceeded to ask me, she said, Jess, at what point, right, did you stop growing in your understanding as to what was being taught? You know, I looked at her dead in the eyes, and I answered her as honestly as I knew how, and I said, way back at the beginning, elementary school. You know, how many know that, like, elementary school, those foundational pieces, right, are crucial to growth and understanding and knowledge. You know, I often thank God for my husband. Now, I may would say, you know, you are thankful for your spouse, right? You're thankful for the person that God has placed in your life. And, you know, I'm thankful for my husband and the gift that he is to our family. I can tell you I am never more thankful than when it comes time for my children to complete their math assignments, you know? He's a blessing. But to put things into perspective, while I was taking pre-algebra, my husband was taking calculus four. So how many know God knows what we need, right? And so it's been said, right, that the mathematical skills that students learn from kindergarten through eighth grade are the foundational skills upon which all higher level learning and math concepts build. In an honors research project, there were 39 9th and 10th graders. They were involved in a college preparatory program. These 39 students were divided into two groups, and they were going to be tested on fractions and ratios and proportions. The first 20 students were tested on fractions, and they were given three questions, a third grade question, a fourth grade question, and a fifth grade question. Out of those 20 students, only five were able to pass the exam. The remaining 19 students were tested on the ratios and proportions aspect, and they too were given three questions, a sixth grade question and two seventh grade questions. Out of those 19 students in an honors research program, only two were able to pass the test. You know, a key takeaway from the project was this, that if the foundation, right, if the basics of math is not mastered, if the how, procedural knowledge, and the why, conceptual understanding, right? If those two things fail to connect, students will continue to struggle with all higher level math courses and concepts. In short, the foundation, right? The basics of math, it matters greatly for 
It's the building blocks that largely determine present success and continued growth. You know, aren't you thankful I'm not here to talk to you about math this morning, amen, right? But what I am here to talk to you about is the fact that I would dare say in a similar way, this is also true as it relates to our Christian life and our spiritual walk. I'm going to understand that the basics, right, the foundation, it, it matters greatly as it pertains to our, our closeness and our nearness with the Father, especially as we navigate a sin-filled world. We understand that if we focus solely right on the do's and don'ts, how many understand that being a believer, and if you've grown up in church or maybe, you know, you've been around Christians a long time, you've begun to recognize that it can be easy to focus solely on the do's and don'ts. How many know that in Scripture, right, we find a lot of rules and requirements, right, that God gives us in this book? And it can be so easy for us, right, to get caught up in the list of rules and requirements. And yet if we're not careful and we fail to make the connection between the rules and the guidelines that God gives us in this book, right, and, and why they matter, it can so easily become for us, right, mere religion, how many have ever gotten caught up in religion, right, rather than relationship? It can be so easy for us to get caught up in mere religion, causing us to miss out on the very thing that the rules are intended to be a pathway to, which is a deeper, more intimate relationship with a father. You know, my heart is this, that I don't know about you, but I would say for myself that I want to continually grow in that intimate relationship with my father, that I don't want to miss out on anything that he has for me. You know, as we turn to the book of James, and I invite you to do the same this morning, what we find is a practical manual, right? Or kind of like this how-to-do-it book on Christian living. You know, I, what I love about this book and specifically about James is that he not only gives us basic instruction on how to live, but he also tells us why it matters. So as James, as he's addressing and writing to the first century Jewish Christian believers, who have been scattered throughout the world, he gives them this warning and admonition in James chapter 4, starting at verse 1, reading through 10, from the New Living Translation. It says this, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't. Have what you want because you don't ask God for it. Verse 3. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter, and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. In honor. You know, as you read this passage of scripture and as you look at the life of James, you understand that James was the brother of Jesus. 
But we also understand that James was a former skeptic of Christ, right? Uh, we see, however, that there was this radical change as you look at church history, right? And you read the book of James, that there was this radical change that took place within James that, you know, moved him from this cynical, doubting younger brother to a faithful follower and a strong leader within the first century church of Jerusalem. We understand that without a doubt, this revolutionary reworking within James can be traced back to this one moment where Jesus personally appeared to James following the crucifixion as the risen Christ. I want you to understand something, that this reunion for James, right, and his brother Jesus, as Jesus is standing there, right, he, not dead in a tomb, but very much alive as he stood there before James, right, this reunion was a revolutionary moment for James. It was this moment where he had this revelation that Jesus Christ, right, was, was not just his brother, right, but Jesus Christ was in fact the, the Lamb of God who had died on a cross to take away the sins of the world and that he truly was the Messiah. It was this moment that was life-altering for James. How many understand that if you're sitting in this room and you've had a, a personal experience with Jesus Christ, You've had that moment where it goes beyond Jesus just being a good man, right, or a, a great teacher that we read about in church history, but rather, in fact, that he truly is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, who is, you know, seated at the right hand of the Father, and that who is coming again for his church. You understand that when you have that moment where you have a revelation of who Jesus Christ is, it changes the course of your entire life, or it should you know, we see that it was this moment for James that transformed a sibling into a servant, right? An antagonist into an apologist and a pessimistic observer into an impassioned follower. And we see that in the book of Acts, right, that subsequent to Pentecost, there was this rapid spread of Christianity throughout Jerusalem, which was the birthplace of Christianity. We also see another thing take place, that in response to this rapid spread of Christianity throughout Jerusalem, right, fierce opposition and hostility began to rise against the first century church that was living there. You see, the goal of the enemy was to silence the church and to eliminate any trace of Christ's followers. How many understand that the enemy's tactics, his goals, right, really haven't changed too much from the first century to the 21st century? That the enemy desires, right, to silence the church's message, right, and to eliminate any believers who resemble Jesus Christ before a lost world. You see, this resulted in there being a, a scattering, right, of believers from Jerusalem throughout the world, or a dysphoria. And so as we read this, we understand that James, as he's writing this letter, right, he, he's writing to those believers who have now been scattered, and he understands that a few things have taken place. And he observes that, that you know, no location on earth would provide a continued escape from the persistence of the enemy. I mean, no, it'd be nice, like, right, if we could go to, you know, Aruba or somewhere like that, right? And the enemy couldn't follow us there. But how many understand that the enemy is persistent, right? Although he leaves for a moment, he looks for another opportune time. And so James understood that no matter where the believers would end up, they would still, right, be pursued by the enemy. That regardless of their destination, they would continue to be surrounded by a culture that would challenge their love, their devotion, their loyalty, and their activity to and for God. 
How many understand that that sounds very similar to the world in which we live today, right? How many can say that, you know, you can see the persistence and the attacks of the enemy in your own life, right? To come between you and that intimate relationship that you have with God. That you can realize that as you look at culture, there's a culture out there that is most certainly challenging, right? Challenging the revelation that you've had of Jesus Christ, that they're inevitably challenging your love, your loyalty, and your devotion for the Lord. This resulted in a scattering that took place. There was now distance between the disciples or the apostles and elders to the first century church. And as a result, with the, the result of living for Christ was undoubtedly becoming more difficult. And so here in our letter, as James writes to believers, he speaks to the important and the crucial role that both knowledge and application of the basics of Scripture, or the lack of it, will have and is already having on their present commitment, their future development or growth, and their eternal kingdom impact. We see here that James is calling the believers to an awakening. In other words, a, a rousing from their inactivity or indifference, right? A revival of their, of their kingdom-minded interests and a keen awareness that, man, there was a spiritual war that was being waged, not just for their attention, but ultimately for their affection. You know, as I was just studying this passage of Scripture, you know, I felt the Holy Spirit speak to my heart that James's message and his call to awakening to the first century church is just as much needed today for you and I in the 21st century, if not more so than when the words were originally penned. I believe so strongly that as believers, right, how many understand that when you've had a revelation of Jesus Christ, as we've said, it should change everything. But I believe so strongly that in the world in which we live here in the 21st century, this generation, the church of today, is in need of another great awakening, a rousing from our inactivity and indifference as it pertains to kingdom-minded interests, a revival, right, of desire for God's word and a heightened awareness that, man, there is a war, a spiritual war that is being waged for our attention and ultimately for our affection. And we better wake up, church, so that our commitment, our development, and our eternal impact to a lost world in which we're called to reach doesn't become stifled or choked out. There are three things that I'm just going to quickly share with you in this first session. And the first is this, that we see James call the church to an awakening to the core of chaos in the campaign of the enemy. So if you're taking notes, the first is an awakening to the core of chaos and the campaign of the enemy. You know, in Romans chapter 7, we see, right, that the Apostle Paul, he highlights the internal struggle that takes place within every believer as we navigate a world that Jesus said, man, we don't belong to. Aren't you thankful that we don't belong to this world? That this world is not our home, but how many also understand that as we live in the world, we're not of this world, but we've got to operate, right, while we're here. And so here in this moment, right, James identifies that earthly wisdom and divine wisdom, they are in conflict or at odds with one another. That within every believer, right, there is this inward conflict between the spirit, right, and the flesh that is occurring. You know what I find very interesting is that James doesn't chastise believers for experiencing this inward tug of war. How many know that as long as we walk this earth, we're going to have to combat, right, that flesh man, right? It's going to have to be a daily dying, sometimes moment by moment, death to the flesh. And so James identifies, right, that there is this inward conflict, as does the Apostle Paul, between this flesh and the spirit that occurs within each one of us. I mean, this room would say, yes, I've experienced that contending before in my life. 
but between the things that the flesh desires and the things that the spirit wills. And so here in this moment, right, we understand that James doesn't chastise believers, but rather what he does is he helps them identify how to know when the battle is being lost. I mean, you know, that's important to know. How to know, right, like when, when the battle is being lost. And so he makes it very clear that a losing battle is oftentimes characterized by a lack of unity, right, and a lack of peace. How many understand that, you know, so many times, right, uh, James, what he's saying here is what is present among you, right, was simply mirroring the battle that was taking place within you. That what you're seeing in the natural realm is a window into the spiritual state of the battle. The very believers here that once had this revelation like James, right, of Jesus Christ, right, had been called to be missional, right, the very believers that had experienced this revelation of Jesus Christ that were once captivated by the Lord had now begun to allow earthly wisdom and sinful desires to begin to creep in and take root. I mean, you can say along this journey, maybe it's just me, but I think we've all been there where we have had times and moments, maybe seasons in our lives where we allowed and succumbed to the flesh and began to pursue things that were in direct contradiction to God's will and his word. And so here in this moment, James is writing to believers and he's saying, listen, you had this revelation, you're, you know, you had that moment where you were captivated by the Lord, but now you're in this place where you've begun pursuing the things of the flesh. You've allowed sinful passions and pleasures and desires to take root. And they were no longer moving forward towards an intimate relationship with Christ, but rather they were allowing things to come between them and God. And in this moment, the pursuit of the flesh left them frustrated by these unfulfilled desires. How many understand that the devil never really comes through with what he has promised? In this moment, James is writing to believers and he's saying, listen, you know, here you are in this moment and you're frustrated. You've pursued everything that the world has had to offer you. You've pursued every sinful and self-serving desire, right? And here you are in this moment and you're left frustrated by desires that remain unfulfilled. And so in this moment, he directs them back to the seeking of divine wisdom or one of the basics of a strong walk with the Lord. He directs them back to prayer. You know, he says this, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask right, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You see, in their frustration, he points them back to prayer, the, the really the seeking of divine wisdom over my wisdom, right? The forsaking of my desires, right, in the pursuit of God's will. Isn't that really what coming to God in prayer should look like? Where it comes to God and it says, listen, you know, I come to you as my father who has my best interests in mind. I come to you, right, as the creator of the universe who knows how everything should work together. And I forsake my will in the pursuit of your will for my life. You know, prayer, the basics, right, of prayer is a great reminder that I'm in covenant relationship with God. Aren't you thankful that we are in covenant relationship with God Almighty today? And as you think about prayer is a great reminder that I am in covenant relationship with God. And it's also a powerful weapon against the campaign of the enemy that seeks to destroy the intimacy of that relationship. I mean, when we come to God in prayer, it's a powerful weapon against the campaign of the enemy. You know, James understood that under such intense persecution, right, there would be this natural inclination to begin to compromise. 
How many know that, you know, you don't have to be a Christian very long before you begin to realize, right, uh, to an even greater degree, that the way that God desires you to live and the way that culture lives are very different, right? What culture deems as morally acceptable, uh, God condemns. <laughs> and so we look and we see these two polar opposite, right, uh, realities, and James understood that as pressure and persecution would begin to rise and form as it was forming against this first century church, their natural inclination would begin to start to compromise. How many can say, like, you have experienced times in your life where maybe you've succumbed to compromise? Just to why? Compromise allows us to, it allows that pressure to begin to alleviate just a little bit, allowing for a more comfortable and pleasurable life in the here and now. I mean, when we read about you know, when we read the Bible, when we read about those in the first century church, we have to understand that they were very much human like you and I. That they would experience these temptations. And when we think in terms of persecution, right, we're not talking about somebody saying something, you know, nasty to them on Facebook or social media, right? That wasn't the persecution they were experiencing. How many understand that they were living in a world where living for Jesus Christ very well uh, would result in martyrdom? And so here they were, and there would be this temptation to begin to compromise. And James reminds them that covenant relationship demands total commitment and complete surrender. I want you to hear that this morning, that if you are in covenant relationship with God, that covenant relationship, right, demands total commitment and complete surrender. And here in this moment, James put a spotlight on their lack of both. You know, when you look at scripture and many times when People are referred to in scripture as an adulterous people or adulterous generation. It's oftentimes issued at those that err or wrongly believe themselves to be okay with God. And so here in this moment, as James refers to them as adulterers, right? This more than likely comes as a complete shock. This was offensive. How many know that, how many would agree, we live in probably the most easily offended generation of all times? So here James, and he's just like letting them have it. He calls them, right, adulterers. And here they are as they receive this, right? This is offensive to them because in their minds, they're all good with God, right? They've had this revelation. They're good. They're all set. And James is trying to wake them up to the fact that you can't court the world while being in covenant relationship with God. He's saying this, there is no middle ground. You're either all in, you're advancing, right, the kingdom of God, right? Or there's things, you're digressing, there's things that are coming between you and God. It's either friendship with the world or it's faithfulness to God. It's one or the other, but it can't be both. You know, this morning we understand that when we come to know Jesus Christ, right, we are justified. Aren't you thankful for that? That he makes us right. We are justified. However, we also understand, as we're talking about let's grow, right? We understand that sanctification is a lifelong process. How many understand that there's nobody starting with myself in this room who has arrived? Not one of us, right? It doesn't matter how long we've been on this journey. No one uh, cleanly resembles Jesus Christ, right, until we get to heaven, right? So we're on this journey so I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm not preaching a works-based faith, but what I am saying today is that it's not possible for you and I to maintain friendship or harmony of outlook with the world. We can't maintain that while being in covenant relationship with God and walking faithfully to him. It's impossible to maintain those two things. You see, adultery, as James defines compromise, 
plays into the enemy's handbook where, you know, it, it averts believers' attention back onto self rather than onto God. It results in those that are, were once unified in becoming divided. It results in friends becoming enemies and co-laborers becoming competitors. As we look, the enemy's campaign is to derail your commitment, to hinder your growth and development, and to deaden your impact, both personally, publicly, and corporately. And therefore, this is why James calls believers to an awakening right to the core, the core of chaos and the campaign of the enemy. And he directs them back to the basics of prayer, the submission of my flesh to the spirit. You know, as I look around this room this morning, I identify that there is a constant warring and contending within each and every one of us between the flesh and the spirit. And the window into the current state of the battle is often found in uh, the presence of disunity, right, or unity, the presence of peace or the absence of it. And when I speak about peace, I don't want you to think, well, that means that freedom from persecution. No, I'm talking in the midst of persecution, a peace that only Jesus gives. You see, the pursuit of pleasure is ultimately the pursuit of what we think those things will render or give to our lives. But I'm here to tell you this morning, maybe you're sitting in here and you have yet to have that revelation of Jesus Christ. And maybe you're sitting here and you've, you've kind of been on the fence and you've been pursuing the things of this world. I'm, I want you to understand that those deep-rooted desires within you will continue to remain unfulfilled until you start seeking God and his will for your life above all else. You know, don't take the bait of the enemy. Don't buy into what culture sells. You see, it falsely advertises that the fulfillment, right, of sinful passions and pleasures will bring about a wholeness. What we see in its wake is a palpable incompleteness. It markets joy only, right, to leave behind intense misery. It peddles peace only to shell out brutal unrest. You see, the enemy's campaign, his maneuver assault against the church and against believers is to create a culture of compromise. To dupe a world into believing that you can run after the things of this world and be copacetic with God. I felt like the Holy Spirit speak directly to my spirit. And I say this, before I ever share a message, I have to ingest that message. That the Holy Spirit convicts me personally of the areas in my life, right? where I have, you know, uh, submitted to the flesh instead of yielding to the Spirit's work in my life. But I felt like the Holy Spirit said this, you, you need to let the, remind the church and believers know that you can't sprint towards hell while holding the hand of God. You know, what a, what a very clear image that is. You know, I think that that's where a lot of believers are at, where we want to maintain this harmony of outlook, friendship with the world while saying, well, we're also in covenant with God. And James says this twice. It's either friendship with the world or it's faithfulness to God. It's one or the other, but it can't be both. Secondly, James calls them to an awakening to the character of God and the consequence of posture. You know, as James writes to believers who are living in what he's declared to be open adultery, he reminds them of God's character. You know, God is passionate. How many passionate women do I have in the room today? Anybody passionate? Yeah? You know, when, when I think about myself, I'm, I'm, I'm very emotional. So some women, right, would say they, they're not in tune with their emotions. I am very in tune with my emotions, right? I am very passionate. And so 
um, you know, I'm so thankful that, you know, I, you know, God has created me in his image and that God is also passionate. Do you know that God is so passionate about you? He envies intensely, right, the spirit that he has placed within you. And that covenant relationship demands our constant attention and total affection. You know, I'm thankful that God is passionate and that he's also gracious. Aren't you thankful that God, he is just, but he's full of grace. And so God is a gracious God that even in the midst, right, of the campaign of the enemy, even in the midst of my faltering, even in the midst of my failing, even in the middle of the conflict at war within me, God's grace is always more and it's readily available to me. You know, James offers here in this moment the great hope and the great reminder that God is still the, the same grace giver who initially captivated them and his freedom was still readily available to them. Grace is available and it's God's gift for you and I through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we can overcome. You know, but my posture is of greatest consequence. You know, the Holy Spirit reminded me that one of the basics, right, that comes out of the scripture is the basics of prayer and then the basics of posture. I mean, no, my posture either manifests God's grace at work in my life or results in his opposition. I mean, say, I want God to be my friend and not my foe. I mean, no, you read the Old Testament, right? You want God, right, to war with you, not against you. And so here in this moment, it reminds me that my posture is of greatest consequence. He brings them back, right, to this basic principle. You see, the posture of pride says this, I can rely on myself, that I can do this journey, right, that I can grow closer to God and merit his love in my life by doing it in my own strength. Pride says, I've got this. But how many understand the posture of humility it reminds me that I don't have this, but I serve a God who gives me everything I need to be able to live out what he requires of me. You know, the posture of humility also reminds me and it gives me an attitude of compassion and a lens of compassion as I look out the doors into the culture and world in which I live. That I understand that except for God's grace at work in my life, there go I. To understand that I have done nothing to merit or earn my spot in heaven but it's solely the blood of Jesus that has covered a multitude of sins that makes me justified and right before God the Father that has restored that intimate relationship that I have. And so you and I, when we come to our place where we are recognizing our need for God's grace at work in our lives and we posture ourselves in such a way that says, God, I don't have this and I need you, what it does is it allows for God's grace to work readily in our lives, giving us the power to be able to resist the devil, result in his fleeing and it also gives us a compassionate heart to the lost beyond these walls and understands that we have to be missional church that we have been called right to be here in this moment for such a time in which we live not just right to maintain right this this environment where it's it's everybody that looks like us and dresses like us and thinks like us but we have been called right to share a message to the lost out there who are dying and on their way to hell because they they need the same Jesus that I have had a revelation of. They need the same Jesus that I have encountered. And so James speaks so clearly to the importance of posturing ourselves in such a way where we come to God in humility. You know, the same promise that Christ made right to Paul, he also makes to us, my grace is all you need. My power works best, not in your strength, but in your weakness. 
You see, although the devil, he does flee, we are reminded that he comes back for yet another opportune time. How many would say that you find yourself, and I can speak in my own life, the need to daily, sometimes moment by moment, right, depend on God's grace at work in my life, to rely on the Holy Spirit's leading in my life, because I don't have it in my own strength, that I know that the enemy, right, there's no location on this face of this earth that I can go that will avoid the persistence of the enemy, but I serve a God whose grace is sufficient for me. You know, like the Apostle Paul says, for I can do everything through Christ, through Christ who gives me strength. My posture is of greatest consequence. You know, my posture lowers as I'm reminded of the passionate and gracious character of God, that even in my failing, he's still passionate and gracious towards me, that he never ceases to be on my side, he never fails concerning my needs, and he's never less than enough. Maybe you're sitting here in this room and you're just saying, you know what, I have messed up, I have failed so many times. I'm here to tell you this morning that you don't have to remain in bondage or captivity to whatever it is that you've walked in here with that God's grace is readily available to you. What I love about the Lord uh, is that he is love, right? So everything that he does concerning us flows from who he is. And so we understand that God's desire, right, is to restore that intimate relationship between myself and him. And lastly, just as keys would prepare to come, I was impressed as James called the church to an awakening to the completeness of repentance and the credit of humility. He calls them to the completeness of repentance and the credit of humility. You know, as we look in James chapter 1, verse 2, what we discover is, right, initially as he writes to them, he calls them Adelphio, or brothers and sisters. But here in our text, James chapter 4, verse 8, what we, what we find is he refers to them, right, as sinners. What he's doing is he's centering, right, on their need to repent. He's, he's speaking to the great distance, right, that has come between where they once were with God and where they currently are now. I can say that there have been seasons in my life where I have been felt so close to God. And then there have been moments, right, where because of submitting to fleshly desires, right, I allow things to come between myself and God. Anybody else in the room besides me, have you ever been there? whether that's an attitude, whether it's an action, whether it's a thought. And you've allowed distance to become between yourself and God. And James in this moment, he's saying, listen, in James 1, right, he refers to them as brothers and sisters. And in here in James 4, verse 8, he calls them sinners. And he's, he's identifying, right, that there is a distance between themselves and God. What I love about this is James doesn't just stop there. Aren't you thankful that he doesn't stop there? Like, hey, there's distance. But he says, come close to God. This is a beautiful invitation, and really it's a command to come close to God. That in this moment, right, there's been distance. You've made decisions. You've made choices, right? You're no longer growing in likeness to Jesus Christ, right? But you are becoming more like the world. You're no longer captivated. He doesn't maybe have your love and attention and affection the way that he once did, but you've been pursuing other things. And James is saying in this moment to come close. And what I love about this is James doesn't say you've got to go home. You've got to get all your ducks in a row you've got to get showered put on appropriate clothes right he doesn't say you've got to go home and fix all the relationships that you got to first stop being addicted to certain things that you've got to go home and do all these things 
He says this, that in the midst of your mess, in the midst of your failure, in the midst of your fault and your shortcoming and your sin, come close to God. What a beautiful picture. Because it's in that coming close, right, as I come close to God, that God's worth, His faithfulness, His character, His goodness, His holiness stands in stark contrast to my sin, to my failure, right, to my, to my adultery. And it's in this moment that James says, listen, before there can be joy, he brings them back to the basics of penitence. He says, before there can be joy, right, before there can be laughter, he says, there has to be sorrow over sin the things that we've allowed to come between ourselves and God. There has to be deep grief. He says, let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow. Let there be sadness. Let there be deep grief. And I felt like the Holy Spirit just spoke to my heart. This is, the, this is one of the things that just, and I'll just say in general, the church as a whole, believers as a whole, that I can say even personally, I've probably been guilty of doing where we come to God and we're saying, God, just fix it. But we don't have an attitude of penitence. We don't come to him truly repentant. We want the joy, right? We want the laughter. And he gives that, but it comes after there is truly repentance over sin and that which we've allowed to come between ourselves and God. He says, get back to this place where you come to God and you recognize his goodness. I mean, when you come to God and you recognize how faithful he has been when we have been in certain seasons and moments in our lives so unfaithful, it should move us to a posture of humility that leads us right to a place of penitence where we say, God, I, I'm so sorry and I'm so moved by tears that I have hurt the heart of a loving father. He says, let there be tears for what you have done. He says, because before there can be a deliverance, right, there has to be a death. I mean, can say we want revival, right? Before there can be revival, there has to be repentance. And before there can be honor, there has to be humility. You see, the credit of humility is this, it's honor. When, when we look at scripture, right, when we come before God, what does God say? He says, when we come to him in this way, he gives us, right, the very thing that we desire is honor. He says, I will lift you up. You see, we run after the things of this world and we think it's going to add to our lives. It's going to honor us, right? But the reality is it just brings a person low. And Jesus is saying, if you do the reverse, if you pursue me, right? If you seek my will right through prayer, if you posture yourselves in a way of humility where you lean into the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you come to me regularly, right, like David and say, search me, oh God and show me it's in these moments where we posture ourselves in this way that James tells us the credit of humility is honor that he will lift you up aren't you thankful for a God who that when we come to him with all of our mess we've allowed distance to come between us and God where we haven't been so closely knitted with him that when we come to him with all of that stuff he doesn't look at us and say you're too messy, you've made too many mistakes, I've heard this sob story before, but the promise is this, when I come close to God, God comes close to me. 
So maybe you're just in here this morning and maybe you don't feel or maybe you can immediately recognize that, man, I'm, I'm not where I used to be in my relationship with God. I'm not moved the way I used to be moved. And today I just feel like there's a tender wooing of the Holy Spirit just to say, come close. That just as you've had that initial moment where you've had that revelation with God and it changed the direction of your life, God wants to continue to lead you on this journey. Not just so you can make heaven, right? But that you can walk so closely with your Father. You see, we have to understand why God gives us the guidelines He does in His Word. It's not just a list of rules, but it's intended to be used as a pathway for us to grow in deeper, more intimate relationship with the Father. And the beautiful thing is when we come close to God, He begins to supplant His Spirit, right, within our own. Don't you know that as we go along, God continually reveals Himself? Aren't you thankful for a God that we can study Him our whole lives, and I hope that we do, but He will continually reveal something new about His person and His character to us. In a 2019 study conducted by the CDC, it was determined that 25.3% of all children between the ages of 2 and 17 required the use of either eyeglasses or corrective lenses. More recently, the Vision Council in its 2022 report revealed that 79% or 204.1 million adults need some form of vision assistance. How many of you in the room use eyeglasses or some form of vision assistance? Yes. You know, for me, it was seventh grade, right, when one of my teachers began to notice my regular squinting at anything that was taking place towards the front of the classroom. You know, this resulted in my parents, right, naturally um, scheduling for me an eye exam where it was quickly discovered that I was indeed nearsighted. Any nearsighted friends in the room today? Yes nearsighted and so uh, you know this explained why anything greater than an arm's length and distance looked like one giant blur you know unfortunately for me being in seventh grade right how many remember seventh grade <laughs> the timing was less than ideal as just the week prior i had newly applied braces put on right and so they were now being paired right with these massive round metal framed glasses right that I got to confess, these are Amazon's brand. They aren't the actual ones, but they looked like this, that my parents insisted looked great. And, you know, in seventh grade, as you can imagine, I only wore these glasses when I deemed it to be absolutely necessary. Somebody asked me the other day, they were like, does everybody go through an awkward phase? I feel like we all go through the awkward phase, right? You don't get out of life without going through the awkward phase. So this was like the awkward phase for me, you know? Braces, these round metal framed glasses. You know, and to be honest, I'm not really sure whether to regard it a miracle or a plague, but somehow these same frames, right, managed to accompany me all the way from seventh grade to the age of 16, right? When things kind of started looking up, no pun intended, right? I, I became eligible for my learner's permit, right? My driver's learner's permit. And I still clearly recall that morning as we were getting ready. We lived out in the middle of nowhere, uh, Pennsylvania. It wasn't really called nowhere, Pennsylvania, but it seemed like it, right? 
And so the DMV um, was about 35 plus minutes from our home. And so I remember my dad repeatedly questioning me about my level of preparedness. Any parents know your children, right? And he just kept asking me, he said, Jess, do you have everything that you need? And he followed it up with several are you sure's. You know, with all of, you know, the confidence of a 13-year-old teenage girl, or 16-year-old teenage girl, you know, I looked at my dad with a very self-assured, yes, dad, I'm sure. You know, as we finally arrived at the DMV, I remember just like racing into the Department of Motor Vehicles. You know, I had arrived, I, I ran up to the desk, I handed over right all of the necessary paperwork, and as I was standing there like waiting for the lady to get back to me, I began imagining and envisioning myself behind the wheel of my parents' 1995 Buick Century. <laughs> the wind was, you've got to know, right? A Buick Century isn't like a hot rod, right? The wind just like blowing through my hair. And I have to tell you, as I was having that moment, I was quickly brought back to reality as uh, the woman at the desk um, instructed me to make my way towards the vision testing station. You know, I was just recently in the DMV, and I was, you know, pleased to know they still have those. So, you know, uh, the vision testing station, I have to tell you, in that moment, and as I made my way in that specified direction, I began to, like, frantically pat my pockets. How many know it was kind of ironic for the past three years I had done everything in my power to lose these things, and I felt plagued by them, but here in this moment, what I wouldn't have given for those round, massive metal frames. You know, at this point, right, as I approached the vision testing station, I knew that I had nothing to lose. So I was going to roll the dice. I pressed my face as firmly as I could against that machine, and I began to blurt out random letters of the alphabet at rapid fire, uh, to which the woman proctoring the test responded, nope, not even close, with a chuckle. You know, uh, I kind of scanned the room to find my dad in that moment, right? Like my heart was racing. The reality was I had been positioned for success by my father, right? He had driven me to the DMV, right? Not to see me fail, but rather to see me succeed. On my own, right? I didn't have what it took to meet the vision acuity standard of 2040, but how many understand my father had provided me? He had given me access to everything that I needed to meet the standard. In that moment, I realized, right, that access to what I needed wasn't the issue. The issue lied in my failing to lay hold of what I had been given access to. You see, the hard lesson learned in that moment was the degree, magnitude, or extent to which a person spends themselves in preparation greatly affects and likely determines the outcome of either the experience of success or failure. Aren't you thankful today that conversely Jesus proved triumphant by fully meeting the standard that, that, that righteousness demanded? A perfect sacrifice, right, uh, of a life of one who never sinned. We know that the purpose of his mission was to make it possible for humanity, for you and I to be made right with God through him. You know, when we look at the life of Jesus, right, and, and we start out in Luke chapter 2, witnessing him, right, this is first account at the age of 12, in his youth, we understand that Jesus, even as a youth, understood the importance, right, of being in his father's house. Scripture goes on to tell us, right, that he continually grew in wisdom and in favor and in stature with God and all people. You know, the entirety of Christ's earthly journey is this epitome of commitment to and focused preparation for a mission. 
And as we turn to Matthew chapter 4, the events that just unfold prior to the emergence of Christ's public ministry showcase both. So I'm going to be reading Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and then I'm going to jump to verse 17 from the New Living Translation. Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city of Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, He will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Verse 8, next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away and angels came and took care of Jesus, jumping to verse 17. From then on, Jesus began to preach Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As you arrive at this passage, we have to understand that the word then signifies an important connection between the preceding and succeeding events. In other words, right, there's this consequential relationship between Matthew chapter 3 and the events here in Matthew chapter 4. You see, immediately following the conclusion of Christ's baptism in the Jordan River, Scripture tells us, that Jesus then sets his feet in motion right into the wilderness as he's led by the Holy Spirit. You know what's interesting is Jesus obediently, right, leaves the liveliness of the river for the deadness of the desert. And we watch as Jesus is obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit. If you're taking notes, we see the wilderness radically transformed from a place of intolerable desolation to a place of increased dependence. The wilderness becomes a place of, right, no longer intolerable desolation, but a place of increased dependence. Many scholars believe that the wilderness that Jesus experienced, right, was likely between the Jordan and Jerusalem, roughly 30 miles. This specific area was, you know, uh, characterized and synonymous with its intense loneliness and ruin. It was characterized by this jagged and warped terrain with its hills to the south bordering the Dead Sea and dipping down into what is known as the lowest place on planet Earth, offering sweltering temperatures and profound barrenness. So you have to understand, when Jesus is led into the wilderness, right, this is a place, right, where it's unwelcoming, and really it's, it's, it's inhospitable. It's, we're often, we're told as you read, and you read about the location, that it's in the lowest place on planet Earth, and it has these sweltering temperatures, and it was often you know, synonymous with danger because this was a place where wild animals would roam. So we understand that there's the presence of physical danger, right? It's unwelcoming. It's unpleasant to say the least. And Jesus here is led by the Holy Spirit into such a place for this moment. You know, from a surface level perspective, right, we, we see that there's a stark contrast between the, the desert, right, and the Jordan River, where Jesus was baptized, right? And there was this culmination of divine manifestations of his sonship through the 
indisputable, visual, tangible, and audible presence of God. How many know in the Jordan River, right, God affirmed, right, Jesus Christ to be his son. And yet Jesus knew, right, that the same Holy Spirit who had led him right to the river had now positioned him here in the desert. His father would be just as present in the depths of the barren wilderness as he was at the crest of the flowing river. Jesus understood that his father's nearness would not be decided or determined, right, by external factors, but his nearness would be decided by the son's own internal response. Scripture tells us that Jesus, understanding this, it resulted in him fasting, right, for 40 days. So here Jesus is in the middle of the wilderness, in a place that's very unwelcoming, inhospitable. We're told that most people went out of their way, right, to avoid this specific location, And here it was in this moment that Jesus chooses, right, to fast. And Scripture tells us during this time, he became very hungry. We understand that rather than allowing for the very present difficulties to become a distraction for Jesus, that as we talked a little bit about already, would create distance between himself and his Father, Jesus capitalized, right, on the benefits that the wilderness afforded. You see, it was in the wilderness that there was a greater unveiling of the person of God. So here we are, and Jesus understood that in this moment, man, he had an opportunity, right? The devil desired to create distance, and yet in this moment, his father desired to draw him close. And so Jesus made a decision to draw close to God, and as he does, we witness that there is an unveiling of the person of God. This focused time with the Father, right, it reinforces the lens through which he viewed his Father. There's a sharpness, right, to to the character and the person of God here in this intimate time that Jesus experienced in the wilderness. It was preparation for all that was about to transpire. How many understand that in those wilderness seasons, we too have a decision to make? Whether we are going to allow distance to come between ourselves and God or or we are going to lean in so that we can have a a greater revelation and unveiling of the person of God. You see, the desert became not this place of intolerable desolation, but a place, right, of greater clarity of who the Father was, a, a place of deeper intimacy. You see, as we journey through this broken earth, each and every one of us probably already have, and if you've been you know, blessed enough not to have experienced a wilderness season. Unfortunately, the likelihood is you will, right? We've all probably experienced, right, these undesirable times in our lives. We would characterize the wilderness season also as being these times in our lives that are unwelcome. How many have ever walked through a season of life and you're just saying, I would rather not be here? You know, like if we could bypass this or avoid this season, that would be good with me. And these wilderness seasons often, there's potential for many distractions. I mean, during the wilderness seasons in our life, it's easy for us to get caught up, right, in the very real and present dangers that we perceive, right, in the human nature, right? That we realize, man, that this is not necessarily in the natural the safest place to be. It's not the most comfortable place to be, right? And really, we'd rather be anywhere else and There are these times and moments where we're in the wilderness where we can start to question, right, God's character. How many have ever been honest? You've you've questioned God, his nearness, right, his plan. 
And it's in these moments, right, where if we're not careful, the enemy will come in and he will start to create distance, plants, you know, seeds, right, of distrust and, and cause us, right, to get caught up in our own heads. And there can be distance that's created between ourselves and God. And the beautiful thing is, however, that God is, is, is often in these moments and always in these moments, he's desiring to draw us closer to utilize the wilderness season where we have this time, right, time out from everything else and we are in this moment where we recognize our great need and dependence upon God and in these moments God begins to reveal and unveil more of who he is to us you see God's closeness and nearness is not decided by all the hardship that's going on in your life how many know that God is not limited by circumstance but God is as close as we said this morning as we will allow him to be you know, the same God who's so obviously present, right, in these seasons of refreshing. How many have ever been in a season of refreshing where you're like, life is good, right? I can feel God. I see God in everything. These moments of refreshing, I'm here to encourage you today. God is no less present, right, or available in these moments of drought, although his presence might seem more obscure. You see, when we follow the example of Jesus to draw closer to the Father, we are positioned for greater revelation and greater intimacy. Aren't you thankful today that because of Jesus, right, that veil has been torn? And we have direct access once again to God our Father. You know, it's no secret that as Jesus fasted, there was a confrontation that was looming. The entirety of Christ's earthly preparation, right, through time spent in the Word and His unwavering and obedience and reliance on the Holy Spirit proved crucial in determining, right, the wilderness to become a place, right, not of alluring deception, but a place of acute discernment. I want you to know the devil desires, right, the wilderness seasons in your life to be a place of intolerable desolation, a place where you feel completely lonely, a place where, a place where you feel uh, trapped and nothing good can come out of it. And he also desires the wilderness to be a place, right, of alluring deception, However, God desires it to be a place of acute discernment. We are told that the primary reason for Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness is to be tempted. How many have ever read the Bible and like you're like, I had to read that again because I was like, that sounds crazy, right? Jesus, right, was led into the wilderness, right, for the sole purpose, Scripture says, to be tempted there by the devil. You know, in Matthew chapter 4, and let me be clear, in Matthew's narrative, this is the first time that we are introduced to the one who's been at work behind the scenes all along, the devil himself. This is the first time that Matthew introduces us, right, to the devil himself. And without a doubt, you know, Matthew makes it clear that the devil is not just simply a symbol like or a symbol of evil or a representation of evil. How many understand that the devil, right, is not just some like a representation of evil, but however, he is a very real, cunning and created spirit being who is actively contending for the souls of mankind and to thwart the mission of Jesus Christ. And so here we are in this moment 
the wilderness. I don't know about you, but when you read scripture, when I read scripture, I always pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, let the words kind of come to life. How many, I've already said I'm emotional and I'm also visual, right? How many like to see it, right? You just kind of played out. And so that's always my prayer. And, and as I was studying and preparing this message, it was like the Lord just kind of laid this visual, if you will, in my mind of this desert scene. And the wilderness now becomes the stage on which the first confrontation between the two warring kingdoms takes place. There is a war that is taking place, right, between the Son of Man and the ruler of this world, between Jesus Christ, right, and the devil himself, between heaven and hell. You know, the Greek word that's rendered here in our text is tempted, right? It, it carries this negative connotation. I mean, when you hear that word tempted, naturally you're inclined, right, to, to view it as a negative thing. However, right, that same word in the Greek can be translated as tested, which also conveys, man, there's some positive potential here. One scholar put it this way, that temptation in the hands of Satan can become a test in the hands of God. It's flip sides of the same coin. You see, the enemy would now seek to discredit in the desert the very son whom the father had just accredited in the river. I think it's important to note that the enemy didn't approach Jesus in the excitement of the river, but rather he waited for Jesus in the exhaustion of the desert. How many understand that today? The devil is no dummy, right? He waits for us, and he waited for Jesus, right, in, in this moment where he felt as if he could capitalize on the Son of Man's weakness, potential weak spot. How many know the most dangerous animal in that desert or predator in that desert was the devil himself? As he waited and lurked for the Son of Man, he waited for the opportunity where he could attack Jesus at both his un, his, the unfavorable and at the monumental, where he would attack Jesus at his point of what he would perceive as weakness and his point of strength, the areas where he was most susceptible to pride and insecurity. Anybody else in the room susceptible to pride and insecurity? Oh, just me. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, anybody else, right, susceptible to those things? And here Jesus, right, is in the middle of the desert, and there's no doubt he has this bodily fatigue. How many have ever been hangry before, right? Maybe you're hangry right now, but you had a snack, so you shouldn't be, right? Hangry, right? And, you know, my husband, he, he's going to get it. He's not even here, but he always says to me, whenever I get a little crabby, right, he's always like, do you need something to eat? How I many know he knows me, right? Hangry. You know, Jesus, as he's in the desert, right, there's this physical and bodily fatigue. We understand that it underscores his humanity. Aren't you thankful today, right, that Jesus knows what it is to be hangry today, right? He underscores his humanity that he was fully divine. And yet he took upon himself a second nature, a human one. How many believe that Jesus was fully God and yet fully man, Right? We understand that he willfully emptied himself, right? When we read that, we understand he didn't empty himself of his deity, right? He never ceased to be God. Jesus, right, being God is immutable, meaning he doesn't change. And so he remained fully God. But rather what we read is he gave up his divine privileges, right, and rights and prerogatives, and he took upon himself humanity. You know, my dad, he's been a pastor, just retired this year after 40 years in ministry. And, you know, uh, he... He's, we, we had this conversation and, you know, you ever read scripture and like you struggle to get your mind to understand what it's, what it's means, what it says. And, 
you know, my dad just, we were sitting here and we were talking kind of about this, and he said, you know, it's not really about what Jesus took off more as what he took on. You know, Jesus, you know, he emptied himself, he laid aside, and then he took upon himself, right, that humanity. So here in this moment, we understand, although fully God, Jesus was fully man. There's no question that in this moment, right, he experienced all the things uh, that you and I go through, and in this moment, his weak spot, right, uh, was exposed. And so right out of the gate, the enemy, right, he begins to focus, right, on Christ's newly affirmed sonship. Isn't that interesting that he waits for Jesus to be exhausted in the middle of the desert and then goes after the very thing, right, uh, that was just a monumental moment in his journey. He says, if you are the Son of God, in verses 3 and 6. You know, when you read that in the Greek, that word if more accurately, accurately is translated as since. So the NLT renders it as if you are the Son of God, but if you read it in the Greek, it's more accurately translated as since. So if you were to read it in its real context there, it would be since you are the Son of God. You know, that causes and it kind of changes, right, the way that you look at this. So rather than quest calling into question Christ's sonship, right, he's employing it. He's using it as a moment to manipulate Christ's sonship. You see, when he was putting on the table... He wasn't challenging that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Rather, what he was calling into question was, what type of son would Jesus be? In this moment of complete physical and bodily fatigue, the devil tempts Jesus to pridefully abuse and misuse his title as the Son of God by calling into question the Father's provision. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. By calling into question the Father's protection, if you are the Son of God, jump off. By calling into question God's process, I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. You see, here in this moment, there's this exchange where in this state of bodily fatigue, the enemy comes to Jesus and calls into question God's provision, the Father's protection, and his process. You see, he's tempting Jesus to use his newly affirmed title, right, as the Son of God for selfish aggrandizement and for him to bypass the cross, therefore foiling the mission for which he was sent. I want you to understand something today, that the enemy desires, right, in seasons and moments when you are, are exhausted and when you're tired and you're in bodily and mental fatigue, right, he desires to call into question God's character, his goodness, right, his provision, his protection and his process in your life. You see, because the enemy does not want you to complete the mission and the task and the call of God on your life. And so we witness here that in spite of this emotional and bodily state, that Jesus' spirit man was strong, as there's an unveiling of the purposes of God. So there was an unveiling of the purpose, person of God, and we see an unveiling of the purposes of God. It was in the middle of the wilderness that I love this. Jesus clearly and contextually employs scripture. How many know he combats the enemy by using scripture? We see here that the enemy knows scripture, right? But it's so important that you and I understand, right, scripture in its correct context so that when the enemy tries to manipulate and the great deceiver tries to do what he does best, deceive, we are able to accurately and acutely combat the enemy and engage in acute discernment. 
And here in this moment, Jesus declared by employing the scripture that God the Father was his source of provision. Aren't you thankful today that God the Father, right, is the great, our greatest source of provision? He provides for us our most basic needs, right, and even those beyond that he declared God the Father to be his surety of protection. How many understand that there's no safer place that Jesus could have been than in the wilderness where the Father was? I want you to know today that even if you're in the middle of a wilderness sea, Season, that God's presence is just as near as you'll allow him to be and there's no safer place to be than with the Father. He's your surety of protection. And Jesus declared God the Father, him to be in solidarity of process with God the Father. You know, I don't know about you, uh, but I want to be in line with God's will for my life. I hope that's your prayer today to say, God, even though I don't like necessarily the plan, the plan isn't comfortable this place is a place I'd rather bypass, rather not be. God, whatever your process is, whatever your will is, God, I am in solidarity of process with you. And with that authority given to him, he commanded the devil to leave. You know, recently, our oldest, all three of our boys, um, and I didn't bring um, any of my prayer cards. I actually, I actually forgot them. Um, but... Uh, this is a, a picture of my family, and all three of my boys, like I said, they are nine, seven, and five now. They have all been wrestling since they were four years old. And so recently, our oldest son, um, he made it to states this year um, for Pennsylvania for wrestling. And uh, he, he told me after one match for qualifiers, he gets off the mat, I'm always hoping that nobody catches me with their cell phone because I will be the viral TikTok mom, right? Like there's the crazy evangelist, right? So anyway, I'm just waiting for that moment. And so anyway, he gets off the mat and he looked at me and he said, you know, uh, mom, I have to tell you what just happened, right? Because I'm sitting uh, at states, right? You can't be as close as what you normally can. So I was a distance off. When wrestler, two wrestlers wrestle, there's this brief moment right before a match begins where uh, the referee has the wrestlers line up in their wrestling stance, right? And there's this brief interaction where they shake hands before the match officially begins. My oldest son was in this moment where this quick exchange took place where his opponent looked at him and said, you better watch out because I have a plan. My nine-year-old, I said to him, I said, well, what did you say? He looked at him and said, that's good. I've got a better one. And so, so with that, uh, and he did, he did. I want you to understand today that although the enemy had a plan, aren't you thankful that Jesus went into that wilderness having a better one, right? He was equipped with the word, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and encouraged through prayer. You know, Scripture tells us that Jesus understands our weaknesses, for he faced the same testings we do, and yet he did not sin. He modeled for us the perfect battle plan. So I'm here to tell you today that the enemy does come to you at your point of weakness. Man, he comes after those places where we're insecure, but we're also where we're susceptible to pride. And the best way to combat the enemy is to be equipped with the word. Get into your Bible to be encouraged through time spent in prayer with your father, right? And to be led by the Holy Spirit. You know, 2 Peter 1, 3 tells us God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. I'm here to tell you, access isn't the issue. You've got a good father who has given you everything that you need, right? To meet the standard, everything that you need to overcome. The issue is often found in my lack of intentional preparation, which leaves me more susceptible to becoming prey to temptation. 
You know, it doesn't matter where you find yourself today. Maybe you're in the middle of a wilderness season, or maybe you're in a Jordan River moment in your life. There's no better time to start preparing to combat the enemy than today. There's no better time to get in the Word than today. There's no better time to get in your prayer closet than today. There's no better time to lean in and yield into the work of the Holy Spirit in your life than right now, today. Lastly, just as keys prepare to come, you know, Christ displayed for us that the wilderness doesn't have to be a place of grave derailment, but it can be a place of gain direction. Aren't you thankful today that the wilderness does not have to be a place of grave derailment, but it can be a place of gained direction. The devil most certainly intended for the events of the wilderness to be reminiscent of those in the garden. You know, I can't help but imagine that the enemy, as he you know, stalked that wilderness, was hoping for it to have a similar ending as the garden experience. You see, in the garden, the first Adam fell in the best of conditions forfeiting for humanity that intimate relationship enjoyed between God and man. The devil had hoped that the wilderness would be similar to the garden, that it would be a place, right, of grave derailment. It would be the place again where God's plan and his purpose would be thwarted. Yet I'm here to tell you today that it was the wilderness that the last Adam rose, right, in the worst of conditions, foreshadowing the coming reclamation and restoration of what had been lost in the garden as spoken by God in Genesis chapter 3 where he says he will bruise you, you will bruise his heel but how many know that the, also the promise said that the last Adam would crush the enemy's head aren't you thankful today that Jesus was encouraged through prayer equipped with the word and empowered by the Holy Spirit and he gives us this battle plan so when we go through seasons of life where the devil desires to tempt us, right? God is saying, listen, I'm going to use this as a place if you'll allow me to test you, to bring you to a place where there's intimate relationship with me, where there's an unveiling of the person of God. There's a greater unveiling of my purposes, and there's a greater unveiling of the path that I have for you. You see, though the devil plotted for the son of man to fall, aren't you thankful But just as my father... God the Father had positioned him not to fall, but to rise. As we think about this, it foreshadowed, right, the events that would take place on the cross. And scripture tells us that from then on, in verse 17, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The wilderness provided an unveiling of the path of God. This was the moment, right, where Jesus then exited the wilderness. And he emerges into public ministry. I'm here to tell you that the wilderness season will not last forever. If you keep your eyes on Jesus, right, there's a greater unveiling of the path that God has for you. There's a greater unveiling of the purposes that he has for you and the person of who he is. But you have to keep your eyes on Jesus. What a powerful image as Jesus exits the wilderness and emerges triumphant entering into public ministry. You know, one scholar put it this way, that this moment depicts the Son of Man and how he now begins his war on hell. Aren't you thankful today that we serve a, a God who sent his Son, Jesus Christ, that although he was fully God, he became and took upon himself full humanity. And he walked and he journeyed and he experienced all the 
a place of grave derailment that will throw us off course or a place of gain direction. You know, oftentimes it's not until we exit the wilderness and emerge into that new season that we can look back and see all that God has done in that season. Scripture tells us right in Luke that the wilderness actually became a place where Jesus frequented and sought out as a place of prayer. And although the wilderness can be uncomfortable, to say the least, it can be inhospitable, it can be scary, but God wants to do something in your life in every season, and especially in these wilderness seasons, where he's saying, let me show you to a greater degree, give you clarity of who I am. Let me give you a greater context to what I want to do in and through your life. Romans 8, right, 28, we know it. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. You know, I believe this. The enemy knows his end is nearing and he's working hard over time and he's plotting, right? For as many people to fall away from intimate relationship with the Father as possible. Can I tell you today that God has positioned you? He knows exactly where you are today. He's not positioned you to fall, but he's with you and he's calling you to rise. He wants to do a work in your life this morning. I don't know about you, but I, for you glasses wearers, I know that the first time that I put on my frames, right, there was this great clarity that I had. How many remember the first time you put on your glasses? I remember being in math class, I put those on, like I realized there were people in my classroom that I didn't even know were there all year. I'm just kidding. But there was a greater context too, right? Like I, I had the courage to raise my hand and answer some questions, right? Because I had a greater context, because I had clarity, there was greater context to what, what was happening. And so I felt more empowered to be able to raise my hand and enter into the conversation. That's what God desires to do in your life. Whatever season you find yourself in, the overwhelming thrust of today has been an invitation to come close to God. And in the coming close, right, he will come close to you. And as he does, right, he will reveal more of himself to you. He will reveal more of his purposes to you. And then he will reveal the path that you're to take. And so if you're in a wilderness season today, I want you to be encouraged that there is an exit date. Whether it's this side of heaven or whether it's in heaven. How many know the promise is, right, this world is not my home. I'm simply a soldier passing through. God has not abdicated his throne. He still rules from on high. And is he is as near to you and I as we allow him to be. You know, I would say this. I love Pennsylvania. Anybody in here love Pennsylvania? You know, a couple of you. I was born and raised in Pennsylvania the entirety of my life, all except for one year, which you'll, you'll have to take issue with my father. He's a pastor. We lived in West Virginia for one year. So uh, my husband went to WVU, and actually all of my family is from the Pittsburgh area, so not too far from you guys here today. But the portion of Pennsylvania where I currently reside, like I said, is in the south central part of the state. 
And so it's, it's characteristically, right, more rural. Um, it's got numerous country roads surrounded by farmland. It's just beautiful. And more recently, our town, the big metropolis of Chambersburg, got blessed with a rural king. Try saying that 10 times, right? A rural king. And if you don't know what that is, it is a farm supply equipment store, similar to um, a tractor supply. How many know what tractor supply is, right? However, my husband and my children would argue that there is one thing that sets rural king apart from all of its competition. And no, it's not the quality of the farm equipment. It's not the home decor, right, or the clothing, but in fact, it is the popcorn. Do you know that when you go to Rural King, you get a bag of free popcorn? You know, every time we ride by, my children are like, please, stop, stop. They're like begging me, and I'm like, no, you're not going to be covered in butter and dropping popcorn everywhere. So anyway, my husband's a better sport than me pray for us. But you know, uh, you know, when I think about this, my kids, they love popcorn. Anybody like popcorn? You know, my kids, they love it. They're passionate about it. We recently took them to the movie theaters. And you know, if you're the generation that, you know, condemns movie theaters, I'm sorry, forgive me. Just forget that I said it, right? We took our kids to the movie theaters to see Super Mario Brothers. Anybody see Super Mario Brothers? No, not yet. Well, you're missing out. Super Mario Brothers. And I have to tell you, you know, as I watched the little faces, Really, I, I realized in this moment they were more excited about the possibility of downing buckets of popcorn at the theater than they were about watching this movie that we paid for them to go see. And I have to admit, you know, I'm not a huge popcorn fan. Anybody relate with me on that? Like, I can kind of take it or leave it. I am, however, a corn on the cob fan. How many can say amen? Thank you for corn. I'm just saying, I feel like movie theaters should truly consider, now stay with me, you know, offering corn on the cob as an alternative, right, to popcorn. Uh, The salt, butter, it's already there. Anyway, uh, you know, throughout the year, you know, there's nothing quite like in-season corn. How many would say that? Like, you know, corn's good anytime in-season. You know, I love planting a garden. Like I said, we live in the rural part of Pennsylvania, and so um, I am six years into planting a garden. However, last year, um, unfortunately due to schedules, I was unable to do so. Anybody in the room garden? You like to plant garden, grow things, a handful of you, right? Um, So this year I was determined. I was going to make it happen, and obviously I was going to plant my favorite thing, which was corn, and I had three very excited helpers, you know, or hinderers, I'm not sure, but they fell somewhere in between there, and so they came over to me, and we were, they were putting these little corn kernels right into the, the dirt, and I took time to like talk to them about how these tiny little kernels of corn were going to soon become shoots that burst up through the ground, resulting in these huge corn stalks that would develop multiple ears of corn. It was awesome as several times a week, the, the, my nine, five, and seven-year-old would race out to the garden, kind of to see with their own eyes the growth that had occurred. One particular day, as they raced out to the garden, right, they stood there in amazement as these once <laughs> tiny little corn kernels that were put in the ground were now these huge stalks that were now taller than they were. You know, it was kind of like, you know, the wonder of a child just realizing everything that had taken place. That same night, unfortunately, we got a heavy storm that rolled in our area. And how many know, like when you live in an area where there's open fields, 
the Mennonites are literally our neighbors, right? And so there's these open fields, cows. These, this huge storm came rolling through, harsh winds and heavy rain. And so naturally the next morning, I walked out to our garden just kind of to survey what had taken place. I walked out and I was so disappointed and disheartened to see that these once thriving and flourishing corn stalks that just the day prior stood nice and tall and straight, looking so promising. Now here in this moment, there wasn't a single corn stalk left standing. They were all completely knocked over, seemingly demolished, lying flat in the dirt. I have to tell you, you know, in that moment, I understand they're just corn stalks, but you also have to understand that I tilled that garden three different times before I actually was able to plant a seed just because of the, the chaos, right, that is life. And there was a lot of work that went into this. There was so much progress that had been made. And as I stood there, right, feeling so disappointed, I felt like just the Holy Spirit kind of reminded me of the Israelites, and as I was preparing for this message, right, he brought me to specifically write the book of Judges and how under the leadership, right, of Joshua, what we see is he leads them, right, into the promised land. And we understand that the Israelites, right, as they continued to walk in faithful obedience to God, God continually laid every enemy at their feet. But in the matter of, right, one generation, what seems like a blink of an eye, the once thriving generation, right, resulted in the next generation, right, who, who came to a place, right, where they were no longer living in the blessing of God, but living in oppression. In the matter of one generation, right, the Israelites who were once experiencing and standing, right, tall in the victories that God fought on their behalf were now lying in defeat to their enemies, Judges chapter 2, if you would turn there with me, starting at verse 10 and reading to 17 from the New Living Translation, it says this, after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. Verse 11, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtoreth. This made the Lord burn with anger against Israel, so he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around and they were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated just as he had warned. And the people were in great distress. Verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods. How quickly they turned away from the path of their ancestors who had walked in obedience to the Lord's command. As you read this, this is a sobering passage of scripture and really a sobering book. The transformation that is recorded here in the matter of one generation, right, is startling. There is a, a stark contrast, you know, between the Joshua generation and the one that ensued. And I believe it speaks so strongly to the importance of 
our faithfulness to God in every area of our lives. You see, our faithfulness to God not only impacts, impacts the present moment in which we live, but it oftentimes shapes and helps define the future. You see, the Joshua generation is described as a people who served the Lord, who had seen, right? They experienced the mighty works of God. How many know, as we sang this morning, they experienced these mighty moves of God. They had seen all of the things he had done. They walked in obedience to the Lord's command. Whereas the ensuing or the resulting generation grew up and did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And scripture says that they served the images of Baal, right, and Asterisk, and they abandoned the God of their ancestors. You see, throughout the book of Judges, there are many things that come to the surface But there are just three things that stood out so strongly to me. As an evangelist, I felt so strongly to share with the church today. And the first is this, that God is clear in his commission. God is clear in his commission, right, to us because he knows the persuasiveness of the enemy. How many understand that the enemy, right, he's very persuasive. And so, Just as God instructed here, we look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, right? Notice the Shema, right? We understand here that God instructed and commanded Moses to go before the Israelites. And he told them, listen, you need to give instruction and you need to exhort the Israelites to understand that it is so important that they walk in faithfulness to me, that they love me with all of their heart with all of their soul, and with all of their strength. In other words, as Moses goes before the Israelites, he says, listen, God has spoken and he's given us instruction and I implore you that you must, as a people, love God with the totality of your person. They were to be a people that were not just characterized by mere outward religious rituals only, But they were to be a people defined by an inward devotion and love for God that would direct their reality. The love for God that they were to have was to be incorporated in every facet of their life. With great importance placed on raising the next generation. You see, the the reality of this exhortation was that for Israel, regardless of whether they were parents with children in their home or not, that this command was to be a united effort. How many understand that this commission was to be a united effort by God's covenant people, that corporately they were to be invested in raising and pouring into the next generation. They were expected to actively guide the youth, the next generation. They were to take advantage both of spoken and unspoken means in public and private areas of life to help guide and cultivate a deep love and desire and devotion that would dominate the emotions and direct thoughts and actions of the next generation that would result in them too having an unwavering allegiance to Yahweh. You see, Moses realized something. The greatness of the nation of Israel was heavily tied to 
the present generation pouring into the next. I want you to let that thought settle in your spirit today. The greatness of a nation is heavily tied to one generation pouring in to the next. You see, this is why the Israelites were given such a commission. You see, the Joshua generation had personally and powerfully experienced God in their own life and their own time. I believe there are those sitting in this room that could say, man, I've, I've personally and powerfully experienced God at work in my life and in my time and in my generation. And yet somewhere how along the way, they failed to effectively communicate. They failed to effectively communicate the connection between covenant faithfulness and their thriving history as a consecrated people. How many understand we cannot fail to communicate effectively to the next generation, right? The connection between covenant faithfulness and God's blessing as a consecrated people. You see, the great tragedy of the Joshua generation was not that they did not know God, but the Holy Spirit spoke this, but rather they did. And they failed and they left behind a generation who neither knew God or remembered the mighty things he had done. You see, the succeeding generation did not have a personal experience for themselves with God. I mean, no, unless you have a personal encounter and experience with Jesus Christ for yourself, you're going to do what comes naturally to the human nature, which is to to live in sin, to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And so God had also commissioned the Joshua generation not only to raise, but as they entered that promised land, right, we're told that God told uh, Israel to also remove There was to be a removing. As they entered, right, the promised land, that the Canaanite inhabitants, God had commissioned them and commanded them to get rid of any pagan inhabitants and to destroy their altars. How many understand today that partial partial obedience is full disobedience? Partial obedience is complete disobedience. I mean, I understand, I think sometimes our human nature likes to rationalize and justify why we are walking in partial obedience. But let's call it what it is. I'm an evangelist, so I see very black and white. It's disobedience. And we see this today. We see it played out here with Israel, right? Because the reality was they looked at the pagan inhabitants and they began to rationalize. And how many know that it's so tempting to think, man, we are wiser than God? It's so tempting, right, to look and say, well, maybe God missed something here. And so the, so the Israelites, what they decided to do was not to fully obey God, but to rather they left behind the pagan inhabitants, some of these Canaanites, right, to enact as slaves for their people. They said, well, we're going to utilize, right, the pagans. We're going to use them to work as slaves for us. But we see here that their failure to remove resulted in this. In chapter 3, we're told that eventually the next generation not only tolerated, right, the pagans, but they began to intermarry with them. And scripture tells us and gives us this picture that they lived among them. In other words, there was this picture of assimilation. The picture that Judges paints is this, that there was no distinction between God's people and the pagans that they had allowed to remain in the land. The ones people that were set apart, right, as God's covenant people, 
now worshiped alongside the pagans at the very altars that God had commanded them to only leave behind as a pile of rubble. You see, the Joshua generation's failure to eliminate the enemy resulted in the ensuing generation resembling the enemy. I believe that's a prophetic word for the church today. For believers today, you see, hear me church, the things that we tolerate, the things that we excuse, the things that we entertain, that God has called us to remove and get rid of by its root, those things that we excuse, the next generation is gonna eventually embrace. And I hate to say it today, but as we look at a culture in which we live, we're not too different than the Israelites. We're looking at a generation of things that we have rationalized and now a culture has embraced. You see, there's a stark contrast in the matter of one generation and it speaks to the great importance that the present generation plays in the future of the next generation. You know, as a parent, if you're sitting in the room and you've got children in your home, God has commissioned you. If you're a believer sitting in this room, God has commissioned you to pour into the next generation. You know, I think about those corn stalks, right, that were just lying flat, face down in the dirt. I would be honest, I looked at that and I thought, there is absolutely no hope that they're going to produce anything. I looked at it and I thought, you know, what a waste of my investment. If we're honest, I think sometimes we can look at culture and look at this next generation and how many, if you're honest, have looked at the way the world is going and thought, is there any hope? I mean, have ever looked at like things that are going on in our world and be like, man, it feels like such a waste, right? And you're looking and you're seeing the direction. I'm here to tell you today that there's always hope because Jesus Christ hasn't abdicated his throne and he has commissioned us as the church, not us, our neighbor, but you to go and make disciples starting in our own homes. Hear me today. Right? God isn't just commissioning the person across the room from you today. He's commissioned you to go and make disciples. You to pour in to the next generation. You know, as those, covenant relations, as those in covenant relationship with the Lord, we have a responsibility to work together to raise up the next generation to do the same. And the great encouragement is this. I'm here thankful we don't do it in our own strength. We don't do it alone. I I want you to understand something. I stand up here and I am passionate about this, but I can tell you that I have failed more times than probably I have not. But I'm thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit and the grace of the Holy Spirit in my life that enables me, right, and goes before me and gives me what I need to be an example to my children in my home. You see, my personal prayer is this, that as I yield to the Holy Spirit's work in my life, that I will take seriously my role in the next generation, especially so as a parent and as a mother. My prayer is this, that I will testify of God's goodness and his greatness and his faithfulness in my lifetime. I want my children to hear me testify and declare and tell the stories of how God has moved on my behalf and in my lifetime. 
I want to cultivate opportunities for those coming behind me, for my children and the next generation, right? To know God and to experience him in their lifetime and to regularly declare the truths found in God's word and to model a lifestyle of unwavering allegiance to God Almighty so that way they understand and they can see, man, my mother was not just somebody who could preach from a platform, but in the private arenas of her life, she lived a life of unwavering allegiance to God, and it was real. How many today would say, that's my desire, that my children, right, the next generation would look at my life and see a life dedicated to the Lord so that they might serve him, so that they might see him at work in their history and walk in faithful obedience to him all the days of their lives. You see, and I pray that I not only raise them, but I remove whatever it is in my life, whether that be a bad attitude, whether it be a lifestyle, whether it be just blatant sin. Because how many know that as you read the book of Judges, what did God tell the Joshua generation? Because you failed to remove that which I commanded you to remove, the pagan inhabitants will now be a thorn in the next generation side. How many today say, I don't want anything in my life that God's calling me to remove to be a stumbling block and an issue for my children? I don't want there to be anything in my life that might make a hardship, right, for upcoming generations to come, that I might grab it by the root, whatever it is, whatever it is in your life, right, that you've rationalized, that the Holy Spirit might be speaking to you this morning, and he's saying, grab it by the root, that bad attitude, right, that action, that behavior, that sinful addiction, whatever it is, grab it by its root, so that way it doesn't become an issue, a wellspring of heartache for your children and their children, because what I fail to eliminate today my children will embrace tomorrow. See, the choices you and I make today not only impacts our present, but it in many ways directs the future. You see, the enemy is very persuasive, and that's why the Lord has commissioned us as the church. You know, I'm passionate about this, that the church gets a hold right of what their mission is. We're not here just to gather right on a Sunday morning, although that's part of it, but how many know we are to be a missional people a people who are living authentically, unwaveringly for the Lord and on task. Secondly, if you're taking notes throughout the Bible, both the Old and New Testament, we see that God is constant in character despite our sinful propensity. Aren't you thankful that God never changes? Aren't you thankful for that? That God never changes and you know, so oftentimes I hear people say how you know, the Old Testament isn't necessary. I, I, I couldn't disagree more. How many understand that it paints this beautiful picture from the Old Testament to the New Testament, right? And we see this, that God, there's not a God of the Old Testament and then a God of the New. How many understand that God doesn't have a split personality? How many understand that God is constant? He's immutable. He never changes. So the God of the Old Testament, right, is the God of the New Testament. And we understand that it's been said that failing to learn from history usually results in the reliving of its lessons. I mean, I can say we see that even right in the natural. Here in Israel, right, we see that their problem, we see it played out over and over again through this frustrating 
cyclical pattern. That's many scholars refer to it as this cyclical pattern, but also there's this element that it wasn't just cyclical, right? They didn't just sin, right? And, and, and kind of, and then God rescues them. And then, you know, it didn't just like go around and around, right? It also went around and then it went down and they went deeper into sin. We see this cyclical pattern of sin and idolatry take place. And it kind of shapes the book of Judges. Because Israel had abandoned the Lord, what we see is this, that he was the enactor of penalty. That he punished them. Scripture says that he handed them over, right, to their enemies. And not only that, that God actively fought against them. How many say, I don't want God to be my foe, <laughs> right? I don't, want, I don't want God to be my foe. You know, I want to be on the same side, the same team as God. And it's important to understand that when we read God was angry, this wasn't like a vindictive anger. I mean, no, when we as humans get angry... We, we often are fueled by rage, right? By this emotion to get revenge or to get even. I want to clear up faulty thinking today. When we read of God's anger, it's not an anger, right, that he is vindictive or he's angry or he's vengeful or he's spiteful, but rather this, this anger comes from a possessive type love. It was a righteous, pure love that moved him to act in such a way You see, his motivation was this desire for Israel to return in faithful covenant relationship with him. Aren't you thankful that even in penalty, God is still crazy in love with you? And he's he's the enactor of penalty, but we must understand where that punishment comes from. And we also see that God is not only the enactor of penalty, but man, he is also, he engages, right? He operates out of patience. Aren't you thankful for a long-suffering God? A God who is so patient with us. You know, we see this cyclical pattern take place throughout Judges. And I think for most of us as parents, right, we've been in this situation where you've had a conversation with your child. How many know what I'm talking about, right? And then where they're like, they make promises like, oh, yep, we're never going to do that again, right? And then next week, here we are. And it's like you just want to bang your head right off the wall, right, theoretically, right? And you're like, why are we keep going through this cycle? How many have had that conversation besides me with my nine-year-old, right? I'm like, why are, why are we here again? We just talked about this. Do you think the outcome is going to be any different? And yet what we see from God is although Israel was so inconsistent, God remained so consistent. And he was full of compassion, right, and patient as he would continually raise up judges to rescue Israel even when they were undeserving. He remained so constant even when Israel was so inconsistent. You know, we know that God is love. I mean, I can say I'm thankful that God is love. And I say this oftentimes, and actually, your youth pastor here reminded me, I, I have a sermon in Alive in Five, and the title of that is God is Love, a sermon that I wrote for Youth Alive. And when I think about that, right, I think about God being love. And so many times when we think God is love, we think, oh, well, that's just something that God does, right? God loves. But the reality is God is love. So everything he does, it's not just one of his characteristics or it's not just one of his attributes, but it's who he is. So everything, hear this today, he does concerning not only Israel, but you and I today flows from who he is, which is love. Whether that's blessing or punishment, God is saying, I am motivated by a love so that you and I, my people, can have an intimate relationship. He loves us enough to discipline us. 
You know, Hebrews says this, for the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one of us he accepts as his child. We live in a culture that would like you to believe that the most important thing is your happiness. I'm here to tell you today that God desires our good over our comfort. He desires our holiness over our happiness. He's pursuing purity over our pleasure. He is possessive for us, and he's patient with us. The demands of the new covenant are no less stringent in that God still demands fidelity. How many know God wants your wholehearted allegiance today? And the future of the next generation hinges heavily on the present generation's seriousness that they take in that commission. Finally, just as the worship team or keys would prepare to come, God is committed to covenant, warring for his possession. Aren't you thankful that God fights for us? I'm not just saying he fights our enemies, but he fights for our heart. God is constant, right? He is committed to covenant, warring for his possession. You know, one scholar put it this way, and I love it. He says, the greatest battle fought in the book of Judges is that of Yahweh for the wholehearted allegiance of his people. That's the greatest battle fought in the book of Judges. You see, although without question, I want you to hear me today, there is a heavy parental responsibility. You know, it wasn't until I held my oldest son, Frankie, nine years old for the first time that I really, you know, I mean, I think a lot of us as like girls, right? We grow up and we think, oh, I want to be a mom. How many of you ever thought that? I want to be a mom someday, right? Yeah. It wasn't until I held that baby for the first time that I realized the weight of that responsibility. There is, it's more than just raising somebody that can tie their shoes, feed themselves, right? Make money, but... Man, there's a parental responsibility here. God has entrusted me with a soul that will either one day live in heaven, right, or go to hell. And that's the reality. And so there's a parental responsibility but I want, for the present generation. But I want each and every young person, if you can make eye contact with me right now, every young person to understand, if you're 30 or under, to understand this in the room, that your parents, those of our present generation sitting in this room as believers, have a responsibility to you, but you also have a personal accountability. One day, each and every one of us will answer to God for who we've made Jesus to be in our lives. You see, there was a great failure of the Joshua generation. Really, it was the next generation who had to determine for themselves who Yahweh would be to them. You see, God had made a promise, right, to the next generation's forefathers, but that promise could only be realized as they were in compliance to the terms of the covenant. You see, God had a desire to eliminate, right, the opposition, right, he desired to do that, but it required Israel's obedience and faithfulness. There's a free will element to all of this. How many understand that free will, living and having free will is very different than living in freedom? God gives us the free will to choose Israel had the free will to choose and they lived in defeat. They lived in oppression to the enemy. 
And God's saying this, freedom, church, is found in complete surrender. You want freedom in the present generation in your life, and you want freedom for your children in the future, then it's found in my surrender, saying, God, not my will, but your will. Not what I can rationalize because you're calling for my obedience. How many understand we love God's blessings? How many can say, I love the blessings of God? But the reality is, blessing follows obedience. How many understand God's not going to bless sin? You want your children to live in the blessings of God? You want to experience it in your home? Then God is calling us as his covenant people to live a life of fidelity to him. He is never so interested in solving our problems as he is in solidifying our relationship. Each present generation has a personal responsibility as I look around this room at the young people, the buck ultimately stops with you. And maybe you're sitting in this room and you would say this, I have, I've raised my children. How many know Proverbs 22 verse 6 reminds us, right, train up a child in the way they should go, right? And then they won't depart from it. How many know, so that's a guideline, right? That doesn't mean that's always what takes place. How many understand? It's a good thing to stake, right? Like if I was a betting person, which I'm not, I'm an ordained minister, so don't do that. Don't tell Don him that, right? So... Anyway, what I'm saying is this. If I were to bet, right, if I were to lay stakes on something, that's what it's saying. Train up your child in the way they should go, right? And the likelihood is this. But how many understand there's that element of free will? And when I think about those corn stalks laying just flat in the dirt and looking at them, any fixtures in the room besides me? Control freaks? Oh, good, I'm glad I'm the only one, Right? Well, ask again. Come on, we can be honest here. Anybody else like want to fix things, right? You want to have control? Yeah, thank you, lady in the green. I appreciate you. We'll have counseling after the end, right? We understand, right, that there are so many times, right? I looked at these corn stalks and my initial reaction, if I'm being honest, was to do one of two things, to start snapping limbs off of my husband's trees that he loves and he wouldn't be happy with me, but like snapping them off, right? And then tying rope around each and every corn stalk to make it stand up straight. Or I was going to go to Royal King and get some bamboo, right? But before I did that, I, I thought, you know what? I'm going to call somebody who's older than me, wiser, more experienced than me. This woman grows corn every year. She's got like 15 acres. So I called her and I said, hey, Karen, this is what happened. I said, I'm tempted to go to Royal King and just start like stakes in the ground. She's like, don't do that. She laughed. She said, you have to just let them lie. She goes, and watch this. When the sun comes out, she's like, each and every day, you'll see them rise slowly until finally one day they're standing once again completely upright and producing. Can I tell you that this season, I monitored that. I don't know if I thought I would like someone's really going to watch this YouTube video that I'm making, but every day I'd get up at like six in the morning. I'd run out to my garden and I'd get my, my camera out and I'd be like, Literally, this is what I did. July 2nd, 2023, the corn stalks are laying flat. I will report back in 24 hours. I did that for like six days. And my husband, right, I was watching my videos and like we were at one of our kids' sporting events and my husband goes, what have you been doing? And I was like, shh. And I'm like, this is gonna matter to somebody, okay? And he's like, this is wild, Jess. So I, I did this, and there was this progression, right? And eventually those corn stalks did stand straight up again. And not only did they produce, there was an abundance, right, of corn that I was able to gather. 
I hear, I'm here to tell you today that you may have invested in your children. You may have raised them, right, with all of your heart, soul, and strength, right, to honor God and to do all these things. But for some reason, because of that free will, right, it seems as if all of that work, what was all of that for? What was all of that tilling, all of that investment for? And you're, as a parent, you're just wanting to go and start grabbing bamboo, right, and making them do the right thing. And that's not how it works. But here's the encouraging part that just as those corn stalks were raised back to life by looking to the sun, you know, God allowed for the next generation to experience defeat, to experience an overwhelming sense of what it is to live in oppression so that way they would be reminded of their need for God. They would be reminded that that is where their victory lied in walking in faithful obedience to God, that they truly were able to experience victory over the enemy because of their relationship and covenant they had with Yahweh. And I'm here to tell you today, don't give up on your kids. You can't fix it. But we know the son, Jesus Christ, who if when they're in a moment and everything seems hopeless, all they have to do is look to him. And I believe today, even prophetically, there are some of you sitting in this room and God is saying, I am going to reward the work of your hand. I'm going to raise to life the very children that look like there's nothing good that can come out of this. And today God is saying, trust me and let the burden of saying, I messed up, I didn't do it right, or the guilt, let it fall off your shoulders today and walk in freedom and declare victory over your children. That's a word for somebody in this room today. The Holy Spirit had you in mind. You know, my prayer today is that as the church, if you're sitting here, this is another thing the Holy Spirit's just bringing to mind right now. You're sitting in here, you're living in a state where life is not good. You feel like at every turn, you're walking in defeat. Every turn, you're living in oppression. God is saying, if you want things to turn around, I'm not talking about a pro prosperity gospel. I'm talking about the peace in the midst of all of that. You're saying today, everything in my life just isn't working. I believe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you today and saying, if you just turn to me, that's where life, that's where substance, that's where growth, that's where everything you're searching for comes from the sun. And so today, the Holy Spirit showing up to tell you he wants to bring you back to life he wants to produce and make good out of your life